Morning. We're reading from Matthew chapter 12 from the ESV version. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how they entered the house of God and ate bread with the pre- of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went out from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him, how to destroy him. Uh, Verse 15. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And his name the Gentiles will and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw, and all people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if he casts out demons by Beelzebub, by whom your sons cast them out, therefore therefore there will be judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed, he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. 
for the tree is known by its fruits. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasures brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasures brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we, will, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks, out, seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they will repent for the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit was gone out when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of the person is worse than the first. So also will be this evil generation." While he was still speaking, the people, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards the disciples, he said, Here are, here are my mother and brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much, Jonathan. You probably need to have a rest after that. It's a long reading, isn't it? But don't worry, we'll be home before dinner. We'll be home before lunch. It's a joy for us to be here and look at God's Word. And in some senses, we could look at one verse of God's Word and see such amazing things. But also, we can look at a passage like this, and we have an amazing, amazing privilege to see that it all links together and that God has something to say to us. So let's pray before we look at God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity, Lord, to look at your word. Thank you that your word holds together. Thank you that it is true. Lord, we pray as we look at your word now that you would speak to us. We pray that you would show us what, what unifies this text. Lord, we pray ultimately that you would help us to see the Lord Jesus more clearly. We thank you so much for him. We pray that you would be with us, help us to listen, help us to change from what we see this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, who was Jesus? Who was Jesus? You see, actually, it's probably the most important question anybody here and anyone in this world could ever ask or answer. Who is Jesus? I wonder, many of us will have asked that question to ourselves before and would have an answer. Maybe some of us won't have. There's a man called C.S. Lewis who said this, 
Listen to these words. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. People say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Well, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the type of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. Instead, he would be a lunatic on the level of a man who would say he's a poached egg. Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man Jesus was and is the son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come with any patronising nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He didn't intend to. You see, actually, that question of, of who Jesus is is vitally important for all of us. But if we look at what Jesus says about himself, we can see very, very clearly what his identity is. And although this reading was, was very long and we go from scene to scene to scene, actually, this passage is all about the identity of Jesus. You see, many people here in this passage are questioning who Jesus is. Some people, in fact, are actually standing against him. They're calling him a fraud. They're saying that he's evil. They're even planning to kill him. But we're seeing all the things that we've had read from our passage this morning, that Jesus very clearly says who he is. And he shows that he is God. So let's look at the first thing that he says. Let's look at the first thing that Jesus says about his identity. Right at the beginning of our passage, we, we have the rulers of the day, these, these Pharisees. These Pharisees actually think that they've trapped Jesus. They see him and his disciples, and they're absolutely delighted. Because they think that although Jesus is a great moral teacher, they think they finally found some hole in his teaching. They think they found, finally found something that he is doing wrong. You see, the Pharisees, they had, in many senses, come up with their own rules. Many of us will, will know the Ten Commandments, right? Whether we've learned them in school or whether we learned them in Sunday school or whether we just know them in, in general. And the Fourth Commandment says this, doesn't it? Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. You see, all the way back in, in the Old Testament, God gave commandments to his people. They were ways that they were supposed to live, ways that they were supposed to re respond and relate to God. And one of the things he says is they, they are to take a day of rest. And you see, the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders of that day, they, they had taken this commandment, remember the Sabbath, and they had looked at that and they said, you know what? We think that we can obey this commandment. In fact, we think we can obey all of these commandments. We think that actually we can make ourselves good enough to make ourselves right with God. So they had started to, to follow the commandments. They had started to be as committed as they could be to obey every single thing that God had said in the Old Testament. And they thought in some way that they could make themselves good enough by obeying these commandments. But you see, they didn't even stop there. Because what they started to do is they started to add their own laws. 
You see, they started to read about what God had said and they started to kind of pin different laws on what God had said. And this made them feel really good about themselves. And in fact, this also meant that, that they, because they'd made these laws themselves, shock horror, they were able to keep them. And so they'd become self-righteous. And so they'd become proud. And so they had tried to put themselves in the place of God. They thought that if they could perfectly follow these commandments, then God would accept them as being good enough. And what they'd done, particularly with this fourth commandment of taking a day of rest, is they'd made a list of things that people weren't supposed to do. And God had given a list of some of the things that people aren't supposed to do, but they'd added to them as well. It's interesting if you think about it from our passage last week, that what Jesus said in Matthew 11 verse 30 is this, For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But actually what we find the Pharisees doing, the religious leaders of the day, is actually they were doing the opposite. They were putting a hard yoke on people. They were putting a heavy burden on people. They were saying, look at all these lists of things that you have to do, some of which aren't even in the Bible. And what we find at the start of this passage is actually Jesus' disciples were breaking some of the laws the Pharisees had put in place. Some of the ways that they'd interpreted God's law. And the Pharisees were oh too happy to tell Jesus that his disciples were doing wrong. Because there was the pride in their hearts, the thing that made them feel better. But Jesus shows them that he knows the Bible even better than they do. You see, God had given the Israelites, God had given his people this this law, these commandments to rest. But the Pharisees had got it wrong. You see, they twisted this good law, this good commandment. Because actually they'd forgotten something key about God. They'd forgotten that God is a compassionate God. God is not a law-giving God like a strict headmaster that we might look at, who if he sees that your shoelaces are untied, then he gives you a detention. He's like, oh, got you. In fact, God is a compassionate God who cares for his people and wants a relationship with them. You see, the day of rest that he'd given as a commandment didn't mean that people weren't to eat, but instead it meant that they were supposed to rest in him. You see, the Pharisees actually, they make more mistakes about this. If we flick forward to to verse 10, we see that there's this man with a withered hand, a shriveled hand. And the Pharisees have become so intent in making all these laws that actually they don't even want this man to be healed on the Sabbath. You see, they lack, they completely lack compassion. They become so intent on following laws that they've made themselves, they don't care for people. And you see, that's nothing like what God is. God is not like that at all. He's a compassionate God. He gave the Sabbath as a day of rest so that people might rest in him and enjoy him. Instead of people going hungry and people not being healed and good not being done, God wants all those things to happen. But he gave the day of Sabbath so that people might rest. You see, the Pharisees see this man who's suffering and they don't want Jesus to heal him. But Jesus said that God is compassionate. Jesus is saying in verse 7, really how he would summarize all of this teaching. Listen to this. If you'd known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. You see, Jesus is saying he doesn't want to put this yoke on people of of perfect obedience to the law and man-made rules. No, instead he's saying what God wants is he wants mercy. He wants people to be compassionate. He wants people to rest in him. 
Whereas the Pharisees were just trying to make themselves good by sacrifice and following all these laws. See, that's why if you're here this morning and you think that Christianity is just following a bunch of rules blindly, then you haven't understood what Christianity is. That isn't just I don't think people that aren't Christians that think that, but sometimes as Christians we can think that, right? We can fall into the trap of thinking that we have to perfectly obey different things and sometimes we can even make our own laws. We can make things that make us feel good because let's, get, let's, let's not get it straight. If we make our own laws, we always make laws that we can obey, right? And they elevate us and they make us feel good and we become self-righteous. But actually, God is a God of compassion and mercy. That is what the Pharisees have got wrong here. But you see, how can Jesus know all of this? Because at the start, I said, C.S. Lewis said that we can't call him a great moral teacher. But here it seems to suggest that he is right. It seems that he just understands the Bible better than the Pharisees. But actually, the real reason that he knows all this is because we see in verse 8, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He's Lord of the Sabbath. Now, I was kind of expecting you guys all to start cheering at that point, right? Is that not exciting? You see, actually, I think for most of us, Lord of the Sabbath doesn't really fill us with much joy. Maybe because we don't even understand what it means. Well, let's look at what it means. You see, Jesus, he isn't saying that he's an expert on the Sabbath. He's not saying that he's got a GCSE or an A-level, or if you're older, I guess it, I think it was O-levels, or a degree or a master's or a PhD. He's not a lecturer in the Sabbath or a specialist in the Sabbath. No, he's Lord of the Sabbath. He's Lord of the Sabbath. Well, what does that mean? It means that he's in charge of it. The reason that he's in charge of the Sabbath, the reason that he is Lord of the Sabbath, and he knows so much about it, is because he himself is the one who gave the law. Because he himself is God. You see, Jesus is being very clear here. We don't have time to go into what he means when he says he's the son of man. But he's saying very clearly here, I am God. I am Lord of the Sabbath because I gave the Sabbath. You see, it's funny actually that, that the Pharisees in many ways, they tried to make themselves Lord of the Sabbath because they'd added all these rules. But Jesus is saying to them, no, you're not Lord of the Sabbath. I'm Lord of the Sabbath because I am God. And you see, Jesus actually is the one who also fulfills the Sabbath. You see, he's not just Lord of the Sabbath because he's given it, but he actually is everything that the Sabbath was pointing to. Because Jesus came to show us that he was compassionate. He came to care for people. He came to not put, like we've seen, a heavy yoke on people, but his burden is light. He is the one that we are to find perfect rest in. Everything that the Sabbath is supposed to point to is to point to Jesus. You see, he's not like the Pharisees who'd come to put rules in place and to drag people down, but he's come to give rest to his people. And you see, it's actually absurd when we think about it, right? That the Pharisees are trying to point out to the Son of God that he's not following his own law correctly. I was watching a show recently, and you might have seen it, called Secret Bosses, where the whole point is that Actually, this secret boss, maybe the CEO or the person that's invented the company, goes undercover, put a fake beard on, change their hair, and they go and work for their company. And there's this hilarious scene where there's this, this woman who's a boss, and she's with this secret undercover CEO. And she is absolutely horrible. 
You see, she's put in all these laws and all these rules that people have to follow. She's made herself really self-righteous. And she's telling this CEO that he's getting it wrong. She's being rude to him. She's pointing out all the flaws and all the things that he's not doing. But you know what? She doesn't realize that she's actually talking to the CEO. She doesn't realize that she's talking to the person who put those rules in place in the first place. She doesn't realize that she's talking to the owner of the company. And lo and behold, we get to the end of the show, and he reveals himself. And she's so, so embarrassed. Because she's been making up all these rules. She's been telling this CEO how he should run his own company. But she doesn't realize that he is the one in charge. He is the rule giver. You see, that's a little bit like what the Pharisees are doing here. They're going to God and telling God that he doesn't follow his own rules correctly. And you see, why is all of this good news? Why is it good news that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath? Because actually what Jesus is saying here, it's good news because of this. Jesus is saying it's not about following rules blindly and adding different man-made rules. No, in fact, Jesus has come to give us rest. He's come, as I've said repeatedly, to, to show us that his, burden is, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. You see, the Pharisees think they have authority and know the law, but Jesus shows them that he is God. He shows them his identity. And you'd think at this point the Pharisees would be absolutely buzzing, right? You see, instead of having to follow all these rules, they've been released. They can, they can be free. They can enjoy God. They can rest in him. They've also just, just seen that this person is God himself. And yet they're so right, self-righteous and so proud. And instead of falling down and worshipping at him, they instead seek to work out how they can kill him. And yet we see Jesus continues to show even more about his identity. Secondly, we see that Jesus is God's chosen servant. You see, we get on to verse 15, and we see that Jesus withdraws. He goes and he, he continues to heal people. And in this, remember what I said, everything through this passage is all about identity. Jesus is revealing more of his identity. Because who can go around and heal the sick? Who can go around and do the miracles that he is doing? It could only be God. He's not trying, though, to make a name for himself, interestingly. You see, so many people in our world, right, they try and promote themselves. Maybe we think of kind of the Jake Pauls and the Logan Pauls of this world, or YouTubers. Or maybe you've even got that annoying friend who's trying to make it on TikTok and Instagram. It's never going to happen. But they're always getting their phone out and pretending. They're always boasting about the fact they've got 10 likes. And you just think, hang on. Let's be serious here. You're nothing impressive. But that is what our world is trying to do, right? We're trying to seek many of us to create our own brand and to get our own fame. But not Jesus. You see, Jesus is doing all these amazing things, and yet he's, he's telling people not to make himself known. Because his mission isn't just to do these miracles, but it is to ultimately reveal his identity, to reveal who he is as the Son of God. And Matthew links this to a prophecy. This prophecy is amazing because it happened 700 years before Jesus was even born. 700 years before Jesus was even born, somebody prophesied about him and then he came and fulfilled it. Does that not say something about his identity? About the fact that he is God? Let me read a couple of uh, verses from this prophecy from Isaiah the prophet. 700 years before Jesus was born, he will not quarrel or cry out, 
No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. You see, Jesus hasn't come to be a celebrity. He's come to serve. He's come to be a servant. We see that in verse 18. God's servant who he has chosen. And you see, just like the man with the withered hand back in uh, verse 9, we see that Jesus, again, he has compassion. He's not like the Pharisees building all these laws, but instead he is one that has compassion. And he heals this man. This man who was demon-possessed in verse 22, we see is healed. But still, instead of realising Jesus' identity as the Son of God and following him and worshipping him, the Pharisees instead are incensed. You see, they lack compassion. This man's just been healed. But instead they start saying that Jesus is from the devil. And you see, it's utterly ridiculous to say, isn't it? Jesus himself says it. Why on earth would the devil cast out his own demons? A house divided cannot stand. We had a funny moment this week on Wednesday. We're planning the Christmas carol concert. And some of the band, who will remain nameless and won't be looking at you at all, had a certain carol they'd like to sing. And they went to Yannick and said, oh, what do you think about this? And Yannick said, actually, I'm not too sure about this carol. And don't get me wrong, the band were happy with that response. But as a joke, they then came up to me. They said, oh, Nate, what, what do you think about this carol? Do you like it? It's quite a good one, isn't it? What are they trying to do? Well, they're trying to get me to say that I like the carol. They're trying to divide us. But as they themselves said, a house divided cannot stand. You see, fortunately, our band aren't trying to divide myself and Yannick. They're not trying to divide our church as much as they might like a carol. But a house divided cannot stand. If Satan, if the devil is casting out his own demons, that makes no sense. Surely he would want his demons to be possessing people. You see, the only explanation is that Jesus is from God. Verse 28. Jesus says this, But if it's by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. You see, to cast out demons must mean that Jesus is greater than the devil. It must mean that he is more powerful than the devil. He says in verse 29, Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Years ago, I had, uh, I had a friend who... Um, was out and, and ordered Uber uh, to come and pick him up. And if you know how Uber works, you, you pay, and then the taxi comes and it takes you home. But what happened is some complete stranger, really cheekily, jumped in the taxi before him and got this taxi that he'd paid for to take them home. So my friend was, was obviously quite annoyed about this, right? Somebody had basically stole from him. But this person maybe wasn't that clever. Because actually the app shows you exactly where the taxi drops you off. So my friend has worked out this. And he said, you know what, I'm going to go and get my money back. So he gets me, he rings me up, he explains everything. We get in the car and we drive around. And as we're driving, my friend's all, he's talking all this madness. Saying, look, yeah, I'm going to go and get my money. I don't care what happens. I'm definitely getting it back. I'm not taking this. It's just, they're taking liberties. And I'm thinking, yeah, cool, like, let's do that. Like, you know, we're not going to do anything wrong, but we're going to go and get your money back. There's been injustice here, right? So he gets to the car, and I say, oh, like, do you want me to come out with you? He's like, no, nah, I've got this. I've got this. So he gets out of the car, kind of looking like he's seven foot tall, kind of walks up, knocks on the door. 
And oh my gosh, the guy that opens the door is bigger than the door itself. <laughs> and I'm looking out the car and I'm thinking, oh dear. And my friend has gone from walking like he's seven foot tall to suddenly shrinking to be like a mouse. And I can't quite hear what was said, but I imagine it was something like, I think you've taken my money, can I have it back? And I just see the bloke turn around and say, no, you're not having your money back, the person doesn't even live here. To which my friend turns around and practically runs back to the car as quickly as he can. You see, there's no way that my friend was going to be able to get his money, right? He wasn't going to be able to push past this man who was pretty much as big as the door, walk into his house and find where his 20 quid was. But, if he'd been stronger than this man, maybe if he was like me, even with my one arm, no, I'm joking. <laughs> and he really wanted to get that money back, could have just brushed aside this bloke, couldn't he? Could have maybe even tied him up. Could have walked into the house and said, you know what, I'll take that money. Maybe even if he was a bad man, which he's not, he could have maybe just taken a couple of other things because this person had taken liberties, right? But you see, because he wasn't stronger than that man, there's nothing that he could do. You see, if somebody wants to cast out demons, then surely they have to be stronger than the demons themselves. Surely they have to be stronger than the devil himself to do that. You see, Jesus is saying here, look, this is my identity. I am stronger than the devil. I am the son of God. If all these things are happening, if demon possession is, is being changed in that people are having demons cast out of them, then surely that says to you that the kingdom of God is here, right? Again, it's all about identity. And the Pharisees actually are in a real danger here because they refuse to accept this. They still don't accept it. And so Jesus gives them a warning. Verse 31. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. We could have spent the whole sermon just on these verses. Because they're really confusing in some senses. And many Christians throughout time have maybe really struggled with them. But let's think about what's actually being said. You see, Jesus says, anyone that speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. And there would have been many of us, right, who would have spoken out against Jesus. Maybe you're not even a Christian here this morning and you've maybe used Jesus' name in vain. Maybe even us as Christians have used God's name in vain. We've, we've spoken out against his Son. We've spoken about, out against God himself. The amazing thing is that Jesus says that can be forgiven. You see that we can be forgiven for what we say. We can reject Jesus. And yet, God is so compassionate and merciful that if we turn back to him, then we can truly be forgiven. But there's this sin, right, that this, this um, verse talks about that says there is this kind of unforgivable state that you can be in. And people throughout the history of the church have always worried about what this is. What is, the, what is this unforgivable sin? Is it, is it getting divorced or is it murdering someone? Is it maybe using the Lord's name in vain? Is it wearing double denim? I know, I know that's stupid. But they're looking out for, is there something specific that is wrong that I could do that possibly would separate me from God forever? Because that's a serious thing, right? But in fact, it's not a specific sin that Jesus is talking about here. 
Instead, he's talking about this idea of a state of being determined to be against the Holy Spirit. A state of being unrepentant, of never turning to God. You see, if you're a Christian here, and you're a true Christian, then you can never commit this unforgivable sin. Because you are already saved. Hear that clearly. If you are a Christian, if you're a true Christian, then you can never never commit an unforgivable sin because you've already been saved. There is nothing that's more powerful than God's declaration that you are right with him. There's no specific sin that you can commit that means that God will turn away from you. But there can be a sense in which there might be some people that aren't true Christians. And if you continue to not repent, and if you do say that you're a Christian but you haven't truly turned back to God, if you continue to turn against him, if you have this state of continuing to not repent, then you won't be forgiven when Jesus returns. Or if you're not a Christian and you never turn to God, you never turn to his spirit and let his spirit change you, then you won't be forgiven when Jesus returns. You see, John Piper helpfully says this, if you're a Christian, you are secure, you are sealed. God will not break that seal, he has you, and he's keeping you for the day of redemption. But there are people who will never repent and never turn back to God. And if you continue in that state then you won't be forgiven and you won't experience eternity with Jesus. You see, as Jesus ultimately says in verse 33 to 36, people will be revealed by their fruit. The way that people's heart is inclined will come out in their actions. And there will be a day when humanity is split, those who are following Jesus and those who are not. You see, Jesus comes not to be a celebrity, but he comes to be a servant. He comes to tell people about this. He's not from the devil, like the Pharisees said, but he's from God. And people must accept that, otherwise they won't be forgiven. You see, the Pharisees still don't understand. So we get to our third point, and this is shorter, don't worry. Jesus will die and he will rise again. You see, even after all of this, the Pharisees still don't recognize or want to admit who Jesus is. They come to Jesus and they ask him for a sign. You see, they're calling him a teacher. They don't, they don't appreciate him as God, as the son of God. They're saying, oh, you're just some kind of teacher, some kind of lecturer. You just have some, some interesting things to say. But Jesus isn't like some show dog. He's not just some performer that's there at their beck and call. He's not just going to turn around and say, oh, how high, when they say jump. You see, he reveals even more about his identity by giving them a sign. Verse 40. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. See, it's a story that most people will know, right? If you've ever read any part of the Bible, everyone knows about the story of of Jonah in the fish. But you see, there's something that's going on in that story. You see, Jonah likens being in the belly of the fish to dying. He says it's like being destroyed, it's like being dead. You see, Jonah figuratively, when he was swallowed by the fish, died. And yet, God caused the fish to spit him out. He lived again. He was dead, but he was alive. He spent three days in the belly of the fish, and then he was saved. He was alive. Does that sound familiar in any way? You see, Jesus is pointing to the fact 
that he will die and three days later he's going to rise. You see, this is going to be his ultimate sign. This is what he's speaking to the Pharisees about. They're asking for a sign, maybe some kind of casting out a demon or, or some kind of miracle, but he's saying no. You see, I'm not just going to cast out a demon, but instead I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to completely defeat the devil. They want to see him kind of heal somebody, but he's saying, no, I'm actually going to go to the cross and I'm going to destroy illness and sickness and death and I'm going to rise from the dead. They're asking for some small little sign because they see him as some kind of show puppet that they can just get to do a sign whenever they want. But he's saying, no, there will be a big sign, the biggest ever sign, that I will die and rise again. You see, if we realize that, if Jesus truly did, and that's a good question for all of us, right? If Jesus truly died and then rose again, then we can't just leave that. We can't just be like, oh, well, that's kind of cool. And then go back on to doing whatever we're doing with our day. If a man died and then had the power to rise again, then clearly the only explanation is that he must be the son of God, right? And so we must change the way that we live our lives because of that. Because if this person is God, then we need to respond to him. And you see, we won't go into it now, just for time's sake. But Jesus says to the people, look, people respond to other preachers and other signs, but you guys won't even respond to the fact that I'm going to die and rise again. You see, there are some people that will see that. There will are some people that will even believe maybe that Jesus died and rose again, but they won't change their actions. They won't worship Jesus as Lord. And that's not because he's less persuasive or because he's not powerful. But it's because some people harden their hearts. And I beg you this morning, if that's you, that to not harden your heart. To not think that you're sorted and try and tidy up your lives and think that God will somehow accept you. Because the only way he'll accept you is if you respond to this sign. That Jesus was God because he died and he rose again. Because like the person in verse 43 to 45, there are people that will just think that they've sorted themselves out but actually there is an even greater danger that they become even more evil because they've turned away from Jesus so let's end by applying this and by looking at what Jesus says about his family you see this passage it ends with a challenge which all of us must answer again it seems like these stories are a little bit random right they're happening at different times but what happens right at the end of this passage Jesus is still speaking to the people and his mother and brothers are standing outside asking to speak to him. And he says this really weird thing, right? Because physically, they are his mother and brothers. But what does he say? Well, again, he reveals, remember what I've said about the whole theme that's going through this passage, he reveals his identity. He says this. He looks at his disciples and he says, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my mother and sister and my brother and sister and mother you see the will of God that he's talking about is that you would recognize his son you see Jesus is saying yes in part yes those people outside are my mother and brothers but you are just looking at me and saying that my identity is just as a human you are saying that I am just related to these people but yes as much as I am there's also something bigger going on here you see Jesus is saying that I have more mother and brothers and sisters because I am the saviour of the world. And if we trust in Jesus, then we can be part of his family. That's the amazing thing for all of us this morning. If we've 
if we responded and if we've recognized Jesus' identity, then we can be part of his family. But the danger is, is if we don't, then we won't be part of his family. And quite frankly, if that happens, we will not spend eternity with him. Because only those that are his brothers, his sisters, his mothers, will spend eternity with him because they're part of his family. You see, it's all as I've tried to explain this morning in a weak way and hoping that God will use it, is that Jesus' identity is flowing through this passage. And the important thing for each of us to ask is, what is his identity? Is he the son of God? Remember, I started with that quote from C.S. Lewis, who was saying that some people say that Jesus is a good teacher, but we can't say that because he told us that he's the son of God. He either is or he isn't. He's either the son of God or he's a complete lunatic. He's either the son of God or because he can cast out demons, he, he's the devil himself. He's somehow got this evil power that allows him to do that. You see, in some senses, for each of us here, you can't leave this building, you can't even sit here right now without answering the question of who Jesus is. And my plea with you is that you would turn to him and say that he is the son of God. Because your response to that question will dictate where you spend eternity. C.S. Lewis said this at the start, let's not come up with any patronizing nonsense about this being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He didn't intend to. It's so clear through this chapter that Jesus is saying that he's a son of God. He's either true or he's a liar. And C.S. Lewis ends the quote with this. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor an evil person. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Jesus is the Son of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that this chapter shows us so clearly that Jesus is making this claim that he is the Son of God. Lord, for those of us that have already accepted this in our lives, help us to see this and rejoice in it and to continue living by it, to not become like the Pharisees and try to live by laws and obedience, but instead help us to live knowing that Jesus is the Son of God. Lord, for those of us who would not say that Jesus is the Son of God, Lord, I pray that even this morning that people would turn to you, that they would see Jesus' claims and they would say, yes, yes, you are the Son of God, and I want to turn to you and live for you. We thank you that Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light. He doesn't call us like the Pharisees called to perfect obedience and man-made laws, but instead he calls us to understand him and recognize his identity and to join his family. In Jesus' name, amen.